Oh, a lot of families experience so much difficulty between family members at the end of life. And I think, well, wow, can can we do anything to improve that? And in fact, what we can do to improve that is have conversations with our spouses, with our partners, with our children, with our friends, so that there's less uncertainty and more clarity. Welcome to Zestful Aging, where I speak with changemakers from all over the world who are contributing to the common good. Contributing to the common good in even the smallest of ways is proven to help us age with vitality and deep contentment. I'm your host, Nicole Christina, psychotherapist and fellow Zestful Ager. My goal is to share optimism about aging and introduce you to guests who will inspire you to live with zest. And to find out more about the podcast, which just won an Anthem Award, hop on over to ZestfulAging.com. And while you're there, sign up for my weekly email newsletter, The Insider, where you will get behind the scenes looks at our guests and other fun tidbits. And if you love the podcast, I'd be grateful if you shared it with your friends. Our music is courtesy of Judy Banker, a previous guest on the show. Find out more at judybanker.com. And our technical director is Stephen Litweiler. We're going to talk about uh, a subject today that um, may not be familiar to everyone. We're going to be talking about death doulas. And um, you may be wondering, what is a death doula and what road might lead one to become a death doula? Well, Diane Hollett has been an English teacher, but once her children launched, she decided to become certified by the Conscious Dying Institute as a sacred passage doula and conscious dying educator and coach. Today she's going to talk with us about what a death doula's role is and why this is so different than the traditional ways we deal with death. Welcome to the show, Diane. Thanks so much, Nicole. It's a pleasure to be here. We're going to have fun, even though the subject can be a little bit awkward for for people. I'm so interested in how you came to decide that you wanted to go into conscious dying after being a creative and an English teacher for many years. Great question. It's a great question. I think what's been interesting to me is that this work has really merged two things that I'm comfortable with. One is facilitating and teaching, and the other is death and dying. and. I'm just one of those people who has never found death particularly terrifying. Um, One friend said to me, you know, Diane, it's like you just don't have baggage around this topic. And I think that's true. And I think partly that's just lucky that I haven't had a difficult traumatic experience. Um, But there's just some way that I just feel comfortable talking about death and being with people who are dying that just... Um, puts me at ease and puts them at ease. It's it's like I see death instead of this terrible tragedy, which it can certainly be, but I also see it as this incredible opportunity. 
So uh, as you said, you know, when my kids got launched, I was sort of at that midlife stage of Mm -hmm. thinking, how am I going to do this zestfully the next (laughs) few years? And, um, you know, right at that juncture, as I was kind of putting feelers out both inside and outside in terms of what might be next, I recall that when my father-in-law was towards the end of his life, we had a very good hospice team working with us. And one of the people who worked with us was a chaplain. And she was so amazing with our family in terms of talking us through what to expect, talking us through what was happening for my father-in-law. And I remember turning to her one day and saying, how did you get this job? This is an incredible job. And she said, well, I have a master's in divinity. And at the time, my children were were young, quite, quite young. And I remember just tucking that away in the back of my brain and thinking, really? A master's in divinity? Is that what I'm going to do? Because not having grown up a particularly religious person, that wasn't really on my radar. So fast forward to teenagers and and a sense of um, empty nesting Uh coming up. And I thought, well, maybe I'm going to look into something like a master's in divinity. Well, I didn't really want to go back to school for that many years. And also, right at that time, a friend said to me, Diane, I just took the most amazing course through the Conscious Dying Institute, and I think you should look into it. And the minute I looked into it, I knew that this was a path to a certification of something that would you, you know, meet my sort of goals and interests, but also be quicker than a master's. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yes. So some of this was really serendipity. You had a wonderful hospice provider and a friend who introduced you to this course. Absolutely. And I've, I've always been one of those people. And I think this has only just gotten stronger in me as I've gotten older. I, I don't know if you'll relate to this, but like when I feel a yes inside, it's very clear. It's very clear. Like I don't sort of hem and haw and I don't follow things that aren't a big yes because I just don't think I have that kind of time. So when something is a super clear yes, like the, that class was, I just went for it. Even though I wasn't sure going into the class what exactly I was going to come out doing, I knew that the class was the next step. Would you? Tell us a little bit more. This is slightly tangential, but fascinating. What does it feel like when you get a super clear yes? Oh, I think I think for me, it's almost like a, well, I can talk about what a no feels like too. A mm-hmm. no is just kind of like a, you know, a flat kind of a, huh, my, my body doesn't react with like a shiver of excitement. You know, it's just kind of like, lands in my chest with a bit of a thud. You know, Uh somebody says, hey, do you want to go do X, Y, or Z? And I kind of go, well, eh, could. And maybe Mm. I still sometimes would. You know, maybe there's a reason to choose to do that thing. But a yes is like this spark, you know, Mm. like just a clarity and kind of a rising of energy in my chest or my Mm -hmm. core that's sort of like, ooh, yeah. You know, like if I had an internal voice, it would be going, ooh, yeah, that. (laughs) Do you are you familiar with Martha Beck? Yes. yes. Okay. Do you do you ever read or hear her talk about the yes experience? Yes. Yes. I love love that. that. It's this idea of shackles off, which is feels like freedom and expansion, and a no feels more like 
contracting. Right. And, and, and again, now, not that there aren't some times that you have to put on the shackles and do the thing that needs doing that's right. an obligation. But, right. but when it's this kind of thing, like, hey, I'm in my 50s, my kids are growing, what is it that's next for me? You know, in a long, stable marriage, but it's like, but I knew I didn't want to sort of um, hang out and, you know, decide what color to paint the bathroom. Like mm. that can be interesting, but I knew I wanted something more. Mm-hmm. So you took this course and were you getting more yeses as you were learning about conscious dying? Absolutely. And, you know, the, the way that the Conscious Dying Institute works with that term, it's it's not that they, you know, that this organization has some kind of idea about what that is. Like, this would be a conscious death. You know, sometimes uh. people hear that and think it's a certain thing. But really, it's it's more saying, what is deliberate for you? What is What would you articulate as what you would like? Mm-hmm. And maybe that looks like I'm in a hospital bed in the living room watching a football game with my family around. You know, that can be a conscious end of life It is if it is what you consciously choose. Or for somebody else, it might be a very quiet situation where only a few people are coming in and out of the room. That can also be a conscious death. But the idea is, what, what are we choosing and how are we articulating that to those who can help make us make it happen. And, you know, I think of it as being a bit like a birth plan. Uh, You know, people make a plan for how they want their birth to go. Mm -hmm. And then, and then ultimately you let it go. You know, those babies come however they come. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But if you don't go into it with some forethought and some consciousness and some hope for how that will be, um, you certainly probably won't get what you hope for. So mm-hmm. I think of it like that. How do we be conscious, um, make choices, and be articulate about what it is that we'd like and communicate it? And what's fascinating is so many of us, um, you know, it depends a lot on the society and a lot on the sort of subculture of your family and friends, but many of us just don't have these conversations. Mm, for sure. That's right. Getting better. Is that, do you experience it getting a little better? I think it's, I think it's changing dramatically right now. In mm-hmm. fact, um, I had an interesting conversation recently with a woman who wrote a book called American Afterlives. Her name is Shannon Dowdy, and she focuses on U.S. society and how, um, death rituals and death practices are changing. And she says, we're just in a flat out open time right now, like anything goes. Ah. Whereas she talks about in the 1960s, by far the norm was embalming and an Mm -hmm. open casket and a Uh more traditional funeral for the U.S. But um, now it's just it's just wide open. So, yeah, I think I think there's a more positive approach to death. I think people are having conversations and I think it's happening worldwide. And environmentally, we're getting more clear that embalming and, and doing traditional burial is a disaster for yes, the environment. And, and even cremation has some big challenges with it. It takes an enormous amount of energy to cremate. So I think mm-hmm. there are huge changes in, in body disposition. Uh, you know, another really interesting book is by... Um, it is by Caitlin Dowdy, and it's called From Here to Eternity. She travels around the world and writes about all kinds of different practices of what happens after people die. And I found it fascinating. You know, mm-hmm. you're living in your own culture and you just kind of assume, well, this must be what happens around the world. But no, it, it ranges widely from, 
you know, place to place. I understand um, in the UK, there's more emphasis now on developing um, green burial and even having parks yes. for people. Yes. Yes. I think that's, idea. I think that will continue to be a big movement. And then of course, Desmond Tutu chose aquamation, which um, really put that on people's radar. People are saying, wait, what's, what's water cremation? What's aquamation? So there's, there's a lot to learn. And, and at the same time, what I talk with people about, you know, when, when people think about conversations about end of life, dying, death, they often think it means either, you know, a will, advanced directives, power of attorney, or they think it means what am I going to do with my body when I die? But I, I think there's more to it than that. So what are you, I know you're an educator and a podcaster. What does your day look like? How, how do you... Um... How do you teach this? How do you share it? What's your role here? Great question. Well, I think that, you know, I think Zoom and the pandemic kind of changed all of this. So in in years before, um, I would have had small groups, you know, in various places, um, you know, a place I rented, the basement of a church, um, the senior center, that kind of thing. But now I teach almost exclusively on Zoom. Um, so I typically teach a class called Best Three Months. And I can I can say more about that because I think it's an interesting program and curriculum. And then I also teach for the Conscious Dying Institute. Um, so I, you know, my, and, and then about twice a week, I record podcasts. So it, it kind of depends on the day, you know, like, <laughs> like your day, I'm sure. One day it might be a podcast recording at noon and a death cafe group later in the day. Uh-huh. On a different day, it might be a best three months group in the morning uh-huh. and um, editing podcasts in the afternoon. Uh, so it's, I see. It's, yeah. it's, um, it's not full-time work for me right now, but it's very um, engaging and I, I find that people who want to talk about this are are very curious and enthusiastic when you, you know, it's like when you crack the door open, they've got a lot to say. Mm-hmm, mm, yes, yes. Say more about the Best Three Months program. Sure, sure. So this is a curriculum developed by the Conscious Dying Institute. And what I love about it is it's really twofold. On the one hand, it's kind of this practical planning tool that that offers some form and structure for how to talk about your life. And on the other hand, it's a transformative experience and people find it very enlivening and very um, empowering for how they want to live. So to say a a bit more about that, what, what we do with Best Three Months is we break our lives down into five areas. We talk about our physical life, We talk about our spiritual life. We talk about the emotional part of our lives. And we talk about our legacy, which is sort of like, um, like, what do you want to leave? What do you want to give back? And I'll I'll give some examples. And then finally, we talk about this practical and after death care, which is kind of, again, what a lot of people think the whole conversation is about. But what what it does is when you really look at your mortality directly, I, I think it helps so much for us to not be blindsided at the end of life and to not have the kind of last minute decision making and fury and emotional turmoil and you know, a lot Anxiety. of fa- oh, a lot of families experience so much difficulty between family members at the end of life. And I think, well, wow, can can we do anything to improve that? And in fact, what we can do to improve that is have conversations. 
with our spouses, with our partners, with our children, with our friends, so that there's less uncertainty and more clarity. So, you know, nobody, no family wants that kind of drama, but a lot of families have exactly that at the end of life. Mm-hmm. So best three months is a, typically I, I offer a seven week course, but sometimes there are shorter versions and it gives people a chance to break their lives down into these five areas. And what I love then is that we, we break it down and we think about it. There are reflection questions. We talk about it in small groups and then people create action steps and what I mean by action steps is, you know, it's it's one thing to say, oh, I know I've been meaning to um, finish my child's photo album, but I just never quite get around to it. You know, a photo album from elementary school, say that you want to give as a gift at their wedding and you just never quite get around to it. Well, the goal of best three months is to help you create smart goals, actual concrete goals and st- action steps that you can then take toward achieving what you want to achieve so that you really can get that photo album done or you can go and download a DIY will and get it signed. People describe such relief when they get these things completed. Mm, And yet we all know they're important, but we kind of put them on the back burner a lot, Mm -hmm. right? But the reason I think it's so interesting is because it starts out being a conversation about what we want at the end of life, but then very quickly people see how they might use what they've come up with to change how they're living. So uh, here's a simple example. I, I had one client who she said, well, best three months. If I knew I had just three months to live, I would absolutely move to Hawaii. I would change everything, I would shift gears, I would move, and I would buy a condo or a house in Hawaii, and I'd move. And I said, well, what is it about Hawaii that feels like what you want? And she said, well, the humidity and the plants. And she talked about how wonderful that felt to her. Well, by the end of our time of working together, she said, you know, I'm going to make it an action step to budget some money to buy more plants for my bedroom. I could go to Costco and buy, you know, three or four orchids and that would make me so happy. And she said, you know, I live in Colorado where the air is so dry. I wish I I think I could put a humidifier in my bedroom and it would make a difference. Now, these sound like really small things, but she improved how she experienced her bedroom and created this little oasis for herself right now. You know, she didn't have to wait till the end and move to Hawaii to get part of what she wanted, right? So again, very simple example, but I think it's so moving to me to see how much we can have agency in our lives and make decisions that have real impact on how we're living by taking a look at our mortality. Mm-hmm. Best life, best death. Yes. <laughs> and I mean, I, you know, a little bit of a deeper example would be um, a woman who was in a class with me who had a very difficult relationship with a brother. And so when she got into this emotional realm, talking about that part of her life, you know, one of the questions we ask is, what, what relationships in your life could use healing right now? You know, is there a loose end? that you'd like to heal. And she said, well, this thing with my brother has just been dragging on for years and I honestly don't know what to do with it. But the class gave her some impetus to think about it, this thing that was always bugging her in the back of her mind. And she decided to 
write him a very heartfelt letter about the last thing that had kind of happened between them that had caused some of this rift. Mm -hmm. And what happened a few weeks later was that they were back in contact. Was it perfect? No. Did she expect the wounding that had happened to go away completely? No. But she said, this is incredible. Like it's been years since Mm -hmm. we've spoken. Mm -hmm. And now we're going back and forth in this email exchange. And she said, you know, the difference in her sense of completion, if she were to, you know, suddenly pass, was really palpable. Mm -hmm. So that's a little bit of a deeper example of how kind of being with these five arenas and spending some time reflecting on them and creating some concrete steps that are meaningful for you, you know, they're not just a, a, a what do I want to say, a cookie cutter. They're really, right. they're really that you create what Very you need personal. to do. Very personal. This, this impacts how we live and can only help improve how our end of life will be. Has it affected the way you think about your own death? And your loved one's deaths? Absolutely. I think it's put me more, hmm, how would I say, like more in the present moment. You know, I think we all have these experiences where we're impacted by a death. And sometimes it's surprising to me how sometimes it's even a stranger. So somebody was killed last summer at an intersection that I drive through almost every day. And the person was a friend of a friend and the same age as me. So this man who died was 56 years old and died at this intersection. That stranger's death has impacted me so because I think about it as I drive and I think, have I said everything I need to say? And I think, have I got my paperwork in place so that if, God forbid, I was in a car accident, things would roll out more easily for those I leave behind? It's. Uh, it reminds me of uh, the five regrets of the dying. Yes, you know to to make sure you're not at the end having regrets. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. And a- what is your family? Uh, how have they responded to your new? fascination and work. <laughs> sure, sure. Well, there's there's a couple of great stories. I mean, you know, my, my husband was very supportive. I said, hey, I, I think I'm going to take this class. And I, I think I'm very interested in um, this this death doula work and this end of life. And he, he just looked at me and said, oh, yeah, great. He was totally unfazed. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and then one of my daughters had this very funny experience. She was sitting in class at school and they were talking about um, taboos in an English class, and the teacher was rattling off some different taboos. And my daughter said she was a little distracted. She was talking to a friend about about something next to her, and, and the teacher said, "Well, what about the taboo of death? Do any of you and your families talk about death?" And my daughter said she she shot her hand up in the air and finished, you know, chatting on the side to her friend and looked around, and she was the only one in the room with her hand up. <laughs> she, said, she said, "Oh, apparently we're we're the only ones who talk about this at the." dinner table mom uh, but um I think my my daughters have found it kind of interesting you know they they it, it's a real conversation opener to say you know my mom's a death doula people mm-hmm. go what you know their their teachers and other adults they know are probably more interested than their peers um you know and we touched on Nicole when we when we were kind of checking at the beginning about what is a death doula and maybe this is a point to say a little bit more about that um, sure you know, I think that 
the easiest way to describe it for people is is to compare it to a birth doula. And in the same way that you know, a family, a pregnant woman might have a doctor or a midwife, and they might have some dear friends and a partner around, but they might also have a doula. And the birth doula's role is to kind of be the glue that holds that whole team together. The doula is paying attention to the mother and the baby and the father and kind of the whole situation, whatever that partnership looks like. And I think a death doula can play that same kind of role. So while there might be medical issues while someone is dying that might involve uh, both a, a hospital or a doctor or hospice, there might also be a death doula who has more time and more attention to give to that one situation. And the death doula is paying attention to the dying person's needs and the needs of the family and there can be a real education component. You know, I, I really feel that in the best sense and in the best hospices, they absolutely function as doulas. And the people who are the hospice um, workers, you know, that is their role. But not all hospices have that kind of time. You know, a, a hospice in the 80s and 90s began to be restricted somewhat in their hours and their availability to families. So they primarily play a medical role and a support role and an education role for families, but they may only be there three afternoons a week for three hours. Mm, Um, That's pretty different than someone who is really says to the family, I'll be there as much as you need. And this is what they can look this year on call. Yeah, Uh exactly. And often there's a team of doulas. So there might be three or four doulas working together to help cover the needs of a family. Mm -hmm. Um, Every situation is different. Every, um, you know, doula is charged in all kinds of different ways, sometimes by a package, sometimes by the hour. And it just depends on the situation and what's needed. But I think that ability to support and to offer information, I feel that there's there's so much we don't know about dying that we've kind of um, maybe forgotten in the U.S. I, I think I think about um, Barbara Carnes, who's a wonderful uh, and longtime end-of-life educator. And, you know, her favorite phrase is knowledge reduces fear. Uh-huh. So the more we know about dying, the more we know what to expect when someone is dying. And uh-huh. different diseases have different processes. And the more we know, the less shocking it is. That's, and- go- that's great. There's a, a British, and I think you probably know of her, Catherine Mannix, the... Um, She's an end of life palliative care doctor yes, and she yes. does YouTubes about this is what it looks like. This yes. is what you can expect. Yes. Um, and uh, I think really to your point of the more we know, the less we're going to be but fearful. What's, what's fascinating to me, Nicole, is this piece about, I, I think there are these really good resources like that, like Barbara Carnes, like um, there's a gal named Hospice Nurse Julie, who's on TikTok and Instagram, does uh-huh. these fabulous little one minute videos. Mm-hmm. But in order to take advantage of those resources, and there are good resources, there's good information, there's positive information. In order to take it in, we have to be ready to say, I'm going to die. Or, ah, or mom, this will also happen to me. Yes, or mom is going to die. Or, you know, my brother is going to die, whoever oh, yeah. the beloved person is. And when we can kind of acknowledge that, it changes everything. And 
you know, that's on both the person who's dying to be able to acknowledge that and the family members and the friends to be able to say, huh. And I, I think we fight, at least in the U.S., we kind of, we argue in our heads about this, you know, is somehow, is calling is calling hospice a failure, you know, is palliative care giving up in some way? But I think across the board, I only hear people say, I wish we'd called hospice sooner. Mm-hmm. Um, I wish he'd been on palliative care months ago. It, it can make such a difference in the quality of life. But there, there are these barriers to people choosing that sooner. Um, and yet there's enormous help to be had. Mm, that's, that's really good information. I'm imagining that because this is a pretty intimate process, um, some doulas may keep in touch with the family after the patient dies. Is yes. that something that yes. happens? Absolutely. Absolutely. Another wonderful resource um, is a, a wonderful colleague of mine who's on Facebook as Dear Gabby or mm. Hospice Heart. And Uh she has a number of followers, and I just love her writing about um, her relationships with families and just what you said, how she keeps in touch with people or runs into them in in time down the road and communicates with them. It's it's a very intimate relationship. Mm -hmm. I imagine you're seeing a lot of rawness and um, vulnerability. Yes. And also people can be very tired. Yes. And, um, and and as you say, siblings can have different ideas about how they want to see it go. Absolutely. And so for me, it's always, you know, it's like we know how difficult it can be and what can we do to make it better? And and I, I don't know, silence never seems to make it better, you know, or pretending it isn't happening doesn't seem to make it better. Um, mm-hmm. So how to how to strike this line between, um, I don't know, be, being hopeful and being aware of our mortality and that those those don't have to be mutually exclusive. We can, you know, kind of walk with both our hand in life and our hand in death at the same time. Mm, what a beautiful visual that is. Uh, Diane, this is so important. Um, and I'm so happy that you had a chance to really go into detail. How can people find you, find out more about your work and your podcast? Absolutely. My website is bestlifebestdeath.com. Mm-hmm. And that, that was a very intentional business name because I really, I really feel that it's about striving for, you know, death is always going to be hard, but striving to make it the best it can be. And then how that impacts our life, I I just see directly all the time. So um, my podcast is also there, Best Life, Best Death. And you can find that on Apple and Spotify as well. I've, I've had a variety of interesting guests. I'm always just intrigued with what they have to say. As you know, it's so much fun to have conversations with oh, people. <laughs> yeah, the best. The best. <laughs> it's like the best job ever. Best job ever. Yes, yes, indeed. Thank you so much for uh, spending time today. Thank you, Nicole. I hope hope it um, you know is helpful for the zestful aging audience. I think it's it's so powerful, and we're at that age. Thank you so much for joining us on Zestful Aging. If you like the podcast, please share it with some of your friends. 
If you think decluttering could help you feel better and you could use a little assistance with that, check out the online course I've developed with professional organizer and designer Carrie Luteran. It's called Too Much Stuff. And too much stuff is different from other courses or articles or guidance you may have used. We give you clear steps to deal with the clutter and the tools to help you face the overwhelming feelings and the emotions that come up when we're going through our clutter. And a lot of those emotions are just feeling anxious or guilty or just basically flooded with a lot of different confusing feelings. The course is really practical. It's realistic. The lessons are short and punchy, and they're really manageable. We're not trying to set you up for some long exploratory, you know, super in-depth, burdensome experience. We want something really helpful for you right now. We all need help with our anxiety. So, Being surrounded by more calm and less chaos can really help. So now's a good time to clear out the clutter so we can focus on what's really important in our lives. So find out more at zestfulaging.com. You'll see more about this under the web courses tab. If you have any questions, just shoot me an email at zestfulaging at gmail.com. Thanks so much. And stay tuned next week for another interview with a fascinating and inspiring guest.